Paul writes, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Our sermon title is Nothing to Boast About. It's taken from Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. I'm not going to give you an introduction this morning. I'm going to go to the very first point. I want you to look at verse 28. There it says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. If you understand all that Paul has set up at this point in time, he's reaching this conclusion. This is what he's drawing upon. That all of us are condemned under sin. That there's nothing that we can do by way of our morality or by our religious activities to take that sin from our lives. That there is no hope and no answer for us except in the work that Jesus Christ has provided for us at the cross. There, Jesus died to redeem us from the bondage and slavery of our sins. That was his effect on us. He redeems us. He draws us out of our sins. He pays the price of our sins. There, God also propitiated or satisfied God's just wrath against God that God has against our sins. That's what he did in reference to God. He propitiated or satisfied God's just wrath and judgment against our sins in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what he's done for us. He's purchased us or bought us back from our bondage or slavery to sin because of our sins. We have sold ourselves under bondage to sin. And this is received for us and this is attributed to us and this work is brought to us. Paul tells us here as a conclusion by faith. And so here's our first point. The means by which we come before God, the means by which we're made right or justified before God is not by way of keeping the law, but by way of faith. That's the whole idea, the whole point that Paul is making here. And when in verse 28 here, Paul says, apart from the deeds of the law, he has in mind the Jewish law as it is set forward in the Ten Commandments and as it is delineated throughout the Old Testament and its applications and the application of those commandments as they're further extrapolated to the people of God and the nation of Israel that God was writing to through the prophets. Paul, having exalting this moral law that is given in the Ten Commandments and, and then delineated through the Scriptures, having said that, Paul is not ignoring all the other codes and all the other moral laws that are constructed in different societies and different cultures. The highest of all those codes and all those moral laws is congealed and expressed and revealed in the word of God and it was a high and holy standard and if that holy law was not sufficient to bring people into a right standing before God we may assume and Paul is that no law no moral standard that you set for yourself or that any other society has set for themselves or any other religion has gathered together and formulated is sufficient to bring anyone into the presence of God the Lord Jesus was actually confirming this kind of idea, this reality in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount that we began to read in our scripture reading this morning. He was demonstrating that the law of God that had been given by Moses set a standard of legal righteousness that was unattainable for the people. 
And as such, they could never attain a right standing to God by that law, before God by that law. And this, in a sense, was the idea of the Jew. The Jew thought that if he just followed all these rules, if he just kept all these standards, that they could, in a sense, ingratiate God or stand before God and be received by God. The Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is actually teaching them just the opposite. That the law does not in any way establish for them a basis or a means by which they can attain a righteous standing before God. And so he says things like this, that thinking or declaring in your mind that a person is a fool is equivalent to committing murder in your heart. Looking upon an individual or entertaining lustful thoughts is equivalent of committing adultery. He commands individuals in this Sermon on the Mount to love, but to love their enemies. He gives them instructions in these ways. In fact, in Matthew 5, verse 20, the Lord Jesus frames the demands of the law that he's going to be preaching on in the Sermon on the Mount by saying this to those who are listening. For I tell you, those who think that they can get their way and enter their way into God's presence by just following all these laws, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that was the, these scribes and Pharisees were those who were committed and most meticulous in trying to follow the laws. They had not only identified the ten laws that are given in the Ten Commandments, but then through their study of the scriptures, they realized that a supplement to those ten laws, there were 613 additional laws. And then they developed an oral tradition around the application of those additional laws so that they might meticulously discover how they could obey all those laws. And so just under the one commandment that says to you're to keep the Sabbath and to keep it holy and not to work on the day of the Sabbath, they identified these, this pharisaical and scribal order, identified 39 subcategories of work, what constitute work that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And then under those 39 categories, they delineated thousands of subcategories under that of things that you must or must not do in order not to work on the Sabbath. And they devoted themselves to these things and to following these things. And then they went around policing and teaching everyone else to do the same thing because this is the means by which we gain an entrance into the presence of a righteous and holy God. And the Lord Jesus says, look it, unless you get beyond and you have a righteousness that's even deeper and more profound and more faithful than what you're being taught by the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never stand before a righteous God. And the impact of coming before the law of God, what Lord Jesus is teaching here, the impact of coming before that law and seeking in that law to come into God's presence is the opposite of what you think it's going to be. Instead of you feeling as though you're gaining God's presence, you'll discover that the law teaches you that you've lost His presence that you can't stand before Him. When you come before the law and you think, I'll measure up and somehow I'll do these things and God will receive me. And if you're honestly taking the input of the truth of that law and its implications upon your life, you'll discover that what it will teach you above everything else is that you're a lawbreaker and that you're broken and that you're sinful. And in that moment, what will happen is when that realization comes upon you, you'll become poor in spirit. You'll lose all the sense of moral currency that you think you're gaining in order to buy your way into God's presence and you'll become bankrupt before God. And the minute you realize your moral bankruptcy, you'll mourn. You'll mourn because you've been living under this idea or this visage of yourself that is totally inaccurate. You're not what you think you are. You're broken and you're covered in your sins and all of your good works are like filthy rags and 
everything you thought you were gaining, when you thought you were gaining your moral stature before God, you were just digging a deeper hole for yourself and you were losing and you mourn because you've lost everything that you thought you had. And once you mourn and you realize your spiritual poverty, you realize your moral accountability before God, and that you can't get yourself out of that situation by your own moral activities, then you, you give up all your self-righteous defenses. You're no longer defending yourself and trying to prove yourself and measuring yourself against other people's performance. You become humble. That is, you become meek. And so the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek or the humble, the one who loses all of his self-arguments and all of his self-defense. This is what the Lord Jesus was teaching. That's where the law, as you come before it and truly understand it for its purpose and what it is, does for you. The law doesn't open the door of heaven to you the law bars the door of heaven to you. Working to keep the law to justify yourself will only show you that you fail to justify yourself. You can't. You're not justified by the works of the law. You have to repent of all that activity. You have to repent of all your attempts to make yourself right simply by keeping the law. And you have to put all your faith in the provision that God gives us in order that He might make us righteous. You have to put your faith and your trust completely in what Jesus Christ has provided for us. And so... Now we come, we're not justified by the law, but we're justified by faith. And we've spoke on this topic of faith before. And what we said some time ago when we began to preach on the book of Romans, because Paul talks about the fact that he is bringing the people a message of obedience to the faith. And what we said is, and this surprises everyone, we said that faith is a work. It's a work, but it's a weak work nonetheless. It's a work nonetheless, but it's a weak work. It's the work of the soul reaching out with empty hands to take hold of the salvation God provides through Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 29, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom God has sent. Now, there it is. Faith is a work. The fact is, faith is not a suggestion. God doesn't suggest that we believe. Faith is not a philosophical orientation that we're being called to a mental outlook that we're being asked to come to faith is something god commands god commands repent that's a command god commands believe that's a command it's a demand that god places upon us and so in that sense when you come to god in faith and you repent and you put your faith or your trust in him and you believe in him you're engaged in a work because it's something that's commanded it's something that's demanded there are the demands of the Jewish laws that we just talked about, the Ten Commandments. Let's consider the commands of the Jewish laws for a moment. They are commands that are responsive to the nature of God and the attributes of God. Every one of the commands of God, every one of the Ten Commandments is somehow our response to how we live and how we conduct ourselves when we understand that God is a holy and righteous God and that He's the one true God. There is no other God. There's only this one true God, and therefore we're to worship only Him. This God is a spirit. Therefore, we're not to worship Him with idols or images, but we're to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so you see that the Ten Commandments are a responsiveness on our part to the character or attributes of God. God is true. God is true in every way, and therefore we're not to tell lies, and on and on we might go. So when we follow the commandments, when we obey the commandments, what we're trying to do is we're, we're simply trying to position ourselves or orientate ourselves or be responsive to what God has revealed in His nature. And the problem is this. If you think you can enter into the presence of God by perfectly mirroring His nature, you won't. 
You'll fail. You won't reach it. You can't. But then there's another command, and it's this command we're speaking about here, this command of faith to believe in Jesus Christ and to receive God's salvation, what God has provided. And the command to faith is also a command to respond to God. But here it's a command to respond to God as Savior and Redeemer. It's to respond to God in the provision that He gives to us because we can't save ourselves and we can't make ourselves righteous. It's a command. It's a command that we come to out of the weakness and out of our failure to follow those first commands. It's a command because we fail to meet or rise to the standard of all that God is and give expression of it in the way that we conduct ourselves. So we come to God like this. We've tried the law. We've tried the pathway. We've tried to prove ourselves. We've tried to acquire it. We have this instinct that's very human in us to say, at the end of all things, I did it. I made it. I gained it. I acquired it. I earned it. I attained this right status before God. We come to the law and say, I'll do this. I'll figure out what the Ten Commandments are. I'll figure out what the 619 Commandments are. I'll delve into this to find out what the subcategories are. I'll get this. We'll study it. We'll develop our traditions. We'll work at it. And we'll prove that we can do it. And we can't. We fail. Just go back to the Ten. Just understand those and the nature of those. You can't do it. You can't measure up to God. You can't be like Him. You can't earn your way into His presence by your good deeds. It won't reveal your abilities. It will expose your inabilities. Failing, you'll come before God when you come before the law the right way and you'll say something like this to God. God, I can't come to you by way of this law. It only shows me how sinful I am and how far I fall short of your own glory. And God responds to you and says something like this. Well then, let's start with a different command. Let's go about this from a different approach. Trust me to save you. Believe in the salvation and the righteousness that I alone will bring to you through my son, Jesus Christ. Don't believe in yourself to measure up in any way. Put all your faith in me. Respond to me now as a savior and a redeemer. That's what he's calling us to. That's the command of faith and you know, there are those who take this command of faith into salvation and they even want to turn this command of faith and believing in God and believing in salvation as some kind of robust, active thing that we assert and we accomplish so that we can feel somewhat good about it. It's some great capacity that a person develops and expresses in their life that they're a believer and follower of Jesus. The words that God uses to express an individual who is submitting to this command and responding to this command of faith are words of resignation they're not words of great force and when individuals begin to comprehend and understand what the life of faith is when they truly understand this life of entering into saving faith of trusting in God's provision they don't use robust powerful strong words of accomplishment when they speak about obeying this command to believe or have faith in Jesus instead their words are words of resignation so the scriptures calls it like receiving to as many as received him and believed on his name. It's just receiving. It's, it calls it like entering into his rest. It's coming weary and heavy burdened, right? We yield. We cling. We surrender. We accept. We put it all down on the Lord Jesus and we trust entirely in him alone. And there is nothing in this expressing the accomplishments that we make for ourselves in doing something. Instead here, there's the accomplishment 
that God has provided for us and that we desperately need and with empty hands we simply reach out and take. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. That's the first point. That's in verse 28. Now go back to verse 27. Let's make another observation here. The second observation we're going to make here is that the principle of faith, which justifies the one who believes, is nothing to boast about. Kind of hinted at at that. The principle of faith, that's the basis on which we receive the salvation God gives us and we are made right with God and our sins are forgiven and taken away and God's righteous judgment against us is removed and propitiated. We take that by faith and it's nothing to boast about. Faith, saving faith, is nothing to boast about. Here's what it says. Where is boasting then? It is excluded, Paul writes. By what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith, he says. We can understand here, by the way, the word law that you're reading there to mean by what principle? Is it the principle of working out your salvation, doing good works, or is it the principle of this responding to God's call to faith? Another way of understanding this word law here, and I think this applies just as well, is to understand that the law means demand. Basically, any principle is something of a demand that's placed upon us. And so the law here means by what demand? The demand of works or the demand of faith? What he's saying here is that, you know, if an individual could, by following all the moral laws, and they could accomplish them and keep them completely, and as a result, they could enter righteously into the presence of God and be received by Him, that would be something to boast about. If you could take all those laws, those laws that the heart of the law says, God says, be holy as I am holy. And you can follow that law in such a way that you can stand before God and say, I'm holy like you're holy. If you can follow that law where God says, be perfect as I am perfect. And you can follow all those laws and come to the end of it and say, I'm perfect like he is perfect. Or you can take that law that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And you can say, I've done that. I can stand before you. That would be something to boast about. That would be something that you could put a brag on about, that you were able to do all those things. But you can't and you won't. I should say this. Anyone who's able to do that is in a praiseworthy position, and we should praise that individual. And let me just say this, we will, and we shall, and we do, because one has. Jesus Christ has come in every way and fulfilled the law perfectly so that he could come and stand as a man before the Father as our representative, holy in every way, perfect in every way, having loved perfectly and completely the Father and having loved all perfectly and completely from the Father. He was, he kept in every way the law. Hebrews 4 verse 15 tells of this one who's our high priest, which means our representative before God. He stands in God's presence and says, God, include all of them in me in what I've accomplished and what I've done. And it says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. We can make our boast and our glory and our brag, if you will, in the perfections of the one who stands to represent us before God. 
the Lord Jesus has demonstrated in his life and through the power of his resurrection, his perfect, complete righteousness. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, confirms this idea, speaking of our high priest. Listen to these words. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. That's it. Can you boast in that? You can boast in that. You can praise that. You can glory in that one. That one who has accomplished all this on our behalf and now represents us. But that said, there is nothing to boast about in believing in him. When our eyes are open to see our utter failure to meet the demands of God's holy laws, and when we see our complete brokenness and our sin, and then with an empty hand we reach out to receive by faith the forgiveness and the righteousness that is provided through the Lord Jesus Christ, His suffering for our sins, His rising to represent us. When we come to that moment, well, there's nothing in that that we can boast about. No one who knows anything about saving faith, no one who has received it, clings to it, yields to it, resigns themselves into the finished work of Jesus Christ, has one ounce of pride, one ounce of self-condemnation in that faith. If you do, if you can imagine that you can take pride in what you believe, or that you can take pride in the exercise of your faith to trust in Jesus, or if you are, I'm a Christian, I believe in Christ. If you're taking pride in that faith, I would suggest to you that it's not saving faith that you're taking pride in. I would say instead that what you're doing is you're putting your confidence in some kind of believism. I bought into that slogan. I'm better than everybody. You, you create it as an identity to make you feel superior. And the minute you create it as an identity to make you feel superior, you're not putting your faith in Christ. You're putting your faith in some idea or concept. It's a form of intellectualism. Now, be careful. We want to have a pure and right theology of the truths of God, but if we boil down our theology to some standard and some position in which then we boast that we see these things and understand these things, then our faith is not resting in Christ. Our faith is resting in our own intellectual attainments, what we see that other people don't see, what we've come to know that other people don't know. And oddly enough, we've developed some kind of strange form of Gnosticism. It can be accurate in many ways. You can miss entirely the whole influence and the whole truth what saving faith is. When faith is expressed, it throws itself upon the Lord Jesus, recognizing it has nothing in ourselves. It sees the law set against us and that we can't meet it in any way, and we can't follow it in any way, and that the only way that we can be saved is coming to a God who's a Redeemer and a Savior and casting ourselves upon Him. Now, there's nothing to boast about in that. We come to the place where we say, I have no other plea and I have no argument that Jesus Christ is dying for me. You know that there's nothing in any of that to credit to yourself in that moment. That we could believe in him for all that salvation. We understand that we could even have faith in him for that salvation. We understand to be an undeserved gift from God. God has provided for us a way and an answer by simple faith, out of our condemnation. He's rescued us out of our destruction, and there's nothing in ourselves to commend in that. We would say more like this. Nothing 
in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul we to the fountain fly, wash us Savior, or we die. And there's no boast or brag in that kind of faith. So Paul is simply declaring the obvious. Where is boasting? It's excluded in the law or command of faith. Answering the demands of the moral law, keeping all that, oh, you could boast about that, but you can't because you don't. Answering the demand of faith and the Savior who rescues us from our own condemnation under that law, all boast is put aside. All pride, all boasting is put aside. Here's an application for us. The person who believes that this salvation comes through Christ alone, the community that meets under that great truth, that we put our faith in Christ above everything else. You know what to be one of the great expressions of our lives before the communities in which we live and before the world in which we live? Humility. Humbleness. A lack of self-assertion. No thumbs in our lapels. Right? No judging others because they don't see it the way we see it. Oh, but for the grace of God. All of God. All of Him. Here's a third principle of faith. It's available to everyone, Paul says. This is the next principle. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And just by the way, circumcised by faith and uncircumcised, that is, he'll justify the Jews by faith and he'll justify the non-Jews through faith. By faith and through faith, it's no difference. It's, It's the same thing. They're all going to be justified. They're all going to be made right in my presence because they respond to my invitation and my call and my demand that they believe and trust in me alone for their salvation. Here Paul is again dressing the Jew and the way in which the Jew thinks. The Jew thinks that his special attachment to the law and being a member of the nation of Israel whose whole social structure was committed to and built around the keeping of that law assured that he was in a privileged position or a justified state. All of this Jewish society was ordered and structured around its festivals and all the commands of God and all the following. They worked together in a sense to hold themselves accountable as a community of following those things. And the Jewish people avoided Gentiles for one reason. They didn't follow these laws. They weren't pure. They were defiled and unclean. And so the Jews worked together as a community to secure and keep their identity as a righteous distinct people, a separate people from all those around them. Because the Gentiles were far from this. There was no organized society or community in order to keep them faithful to the laws of God that had been given to uniquely to them. So the Jew basically thought, well, we're a people of privilege and we're a people that have been made right before God and we have this right standing because we're the nation of Israel. We keep all these laws and we follow these laws and we attempt to and we're structured to Obey and observe these laws by which we come into a righteous state before God. And so we have access to the salvation, and the Gentiles, they really don't. If they can find a way to abandon their communities and come and join our community and be a part of our community, and we'll give them a place, it'll be the outer court. But if they'll follow all these things, then maybe they'll find some way into salvation. Very ethnocentric, very much stuck within themselves. But one of the things the Jews liked to say was that there was one God 
Paul comes along and says, you agree there's one God? I agree there's one God. And if there's one God, there's only one salvation. There's not one salvation for you as Jews following his laws and some salvation for them in some other order or some other strain that we don't know. There's one God and there's one salvation. And here's what we know. It's not through following the laws. Because the laws reveal that you're all sinners. It has to be through faith. And if it's through faith for you, it's also through faith for them. You're right. The law is not attainable for them. They don't have the structure. They don't have the society. They don't have all the writings. They don't have all the oral traditions. They don't have all these things. I grew up in this nation. I know it. I was zealous for the law. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. They don't have these things. And not everybody can come to those things. And not everybody can avail themselves of these things. But anyone, anywhere, can come to faith in God's saving work through Jesus Christ. And because there's one God, there's one salvation for all people. That's his argument. How wonderful. It's not ethnocentric. It's wonderful that we can go to a community that is steeped in darkness. We can go to a society that is clouded and shrouded by idolatry and demonic expressions all around you. And people are under the darkness for generations, being under the darkness of that type of culture that's been saturating and stewing in that kind of environment and you can come into that situation in that place and you can bring the Lord Jesus and the promise of salvation to a home in the middle of that community and the light of Christ can shine in a moment in that place I'll never forget it was about five or six years ago I was traveling I don't know, know what city it is and I forget now I was traveling to visit one Christian family that was living in one community in one certain location in India and we were on a road that was very narrow. There were people crowding the streets. Everywhere you looked, you would look out the window, there were people just all around us. And we drove this way, navigating our way slowly, waiting for little openings within the crowd so we could push our car forward through this community. And the faces, beautiful colors, beautiful expressions, culturally very fascinating, interesting. But the faces, dark, dull, depressed, you just saw it. There was just this shroud of darkness all around you. And this went on for like 30 minutes. And then we came around a corner and we pulled in front of this house. And then out of this house flowed this Christian family. And it was like light pouring down the steps as they came towards you. And joy that just poured out to you in that place right there. People who believed and trusted in Jesus Christ wonderfully transformed in the light of the glory of the gospel that's found in the face of the Lord Jesus was radiating in that place. And no one had to tell me, which is the family we're going to visit? Who are the people that we're going to meet with? It was radiating from them. Maybe Paul was thinking of Zechariah chapter 14, 9, when he talks about this idea, look, if there's one God, then there has to be only one salvation. There, Zechariah prophesies, the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day, over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. His rule, his reign, his kingdom will include all and he, because he is one. His rule is one, his salvation is one as well. We don't preach an ethnocentric gospel. It's a gospel for every tongue and every tribe. It comes to them in the midst of their cultural darkness and ignorance. It comes to us in the same way. It's Christ that we claim. We're not near to the gospel of Jesus Christ because we live in a country that at times is losing, but we want to celebrate and cling to and hold on to our Judeo-Christian values. 
I'm glad for our Judeo-Christian values. I'm glad for the cultural advantages it gives us and the privileges it gives us, but it does not bring to us salvation. It's not because I belong to this community or have been taught these things or what's been passed down to us by the forefathers of our nation that I might claim a right standing with God or I might access the salvation that comes for Him. I claim it through faith alone, clinging to the saving work of Christ alone. And that's available to anyone. We have to be careful about this. We get ourselves all worked up and fixated on these cultural things we don't want to let it go of, as if this is the identifying marker of our life. And then, you know what? We start getting our thumbs under our lapels. We start arguing for these things and talking about these things. And Our faith is in Christ alone. We rest in Christ alone and His saving work for us alone. And the answer that our nation needs above everything else is a people that knows that. A humble, holy people that knows that and rest in those things. Well, the last point that we'll make, and we won't make it this morning, but I'll just mention it, is that this principle of faith does not diminish the law but establishes it. In other words, it fulfills all of its purposes. We'll have to talk about that next week. It doesn't downplay it or set aside the law of God, but it finds its perfect answer in the person that we place our faith in. Jesus, the perfect righteous one who has fulfilled all righteousness for us. And we simply believe in him. Let's bow our heads in this prayer. There is nothing to brag about, O God, in our faith. There is nothing to boast about in our faith. We can't even say that we hold on to it with tremendous power and strength and tenacity. It is faith the size of a mustard seed. It is a faith that is expressed out of our own weakness and brokenness and because we are nothing. And Jesus is everything. It's a faith that comes with no attainments, never any attainments, always forgetting that which is behind, always pressing to that which is ahead, always with empty hand clinging to one thing, Jesus Christ. Every boast, every claim, every merit that we might think we've gained, the faith that saves counts but refuse and is loss and cast it aside to prize and hold on to Jesus Christ only. This faith says I must decrease. He must ever be increasing. This faith teaches us humility. And in it, O oh God, a boast rises up within us, not in ourselves, Not unto us be glory and honor and praises. A boast rises up within us, Blessed be the name of our Savior. All glory and honor and praises to Him who's overcome for us. To Him who alone we stand within. He is all our righteousness. He is all our salvation. He is the answer for all of our needs. He is the one who delivers us from every struggle and every need. Him alone. We cling to Him alone. And His salvation is broad and great. His salvation is eternal. And His salvation is to all who will believe in Him. 
And so we praise you and we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.